Our Father, we have come once again to your word. And we ask that you breathe upon your word and make it come alive to the end that your people will be blessed and your name will be glorified. Amen. Amen. One American author who used to be a monk said, everything that has a beginning has an ending. And he said, make your peace with that and all will be well. Now, while I do not agree with that author or with his point of view, and he's a Buddhist monk, I find that there is a lot of truth in that statement. And as we come to chapter 5 of 1 John, uh, a lot of things are coming to an end. Uh, which chief of which is this entire episode. I don't know how many of us were here, but it was January 17, 2021, when we began to walk through this episode of 1 John. And we have walked through the episode throughout the past uh, three years. And God helping us, over the next couple of months, we would be done with all that the apostle wants us to know, at least for now, as a local uh, congregation. And as we come to the end, I just want to remind us of what has been the central theme of this episode. If you remember that day, January 17, we said that the main reason why this episode was written can be found in verse 13 of chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John, while writing this episode, wants his readers, and by extension all of us here, to know that we have eternal life. In other words, the entire episode is concerned with the subject of Christian assurance. How can I know that I am truly a child of God? How can I come to the point of certainty where I can be certain beyond doubt about my status as a child of God? And right from chapter 1 verse 1, John has been giving us different kinds of tests. He has given us so many tests. He has, along with the test, taught us so much. He has taught us about uh, the regeneration and our status as children of God. He has taught us about the judgment to come. He has taught us even about prayer, about false prophets and false spirits. But in teaching us all of these things, the main aim has been that when you finish this book, you would come to know that you are truly a child of God. Conversely, John also wants us not to be deceived if we are not really children of God. That is, when we apply all of these tests and all of these things to our lives, we that are not children of God should be able to come to the realization that, yes, I am not a child of God. So that's a summary of everything that John has been saying. And now when we come to chapter 5, we find that John is not really going to tell us anything particularly new. He's beginning to round up his thoughts, as it were. And as we come to chapter 5, even though he's still talking about love, remember in chapter 4, from verse 7 to 21, the main theme, the, the main idea is love. 
And when it comes to verse 1 of chapter 5, he shifts his emphasis now from love to faith. So when we come to chapter 5, down from verse 1 to verse 12, it is really faith. And then verse 13 to 21 are just concluding remarks. So we're considering this first part of John's, uh, or this first part is emphasis on faith, which is from verse 1 to verse 5. And now, what John is treating in verse 1 to verse 5 is authentic faith, saving faith, the kind of faith that keeps us going all the way to Zion, the kind of faith that sustains us through all of our difficulties and trials and challenges as God's people here. So that's the faith he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of faith that overcomes, the kind of faith that is victorious, the kind of faith that is authentic. And we can see three major things that John wants to teach us about this faith. He wants us to know the object of this faith. He wants us to know the source of this faith and he wants us to know the fruits or effects of this faith. So in verse 1 to verse 5 this morning, we are going to consider each of these things John wants to teach us about authentic faith. Firstly, John wants us to know that authentic faith has an object. So that we are not deceived when we talk about faith. You see, our day is a day of faith. There's a lot of faith. We have a church called Living Faith. Living Faith Foundation. Faith, if you go to certain bookstores, uh, I went to a bookstore some, some, some months back, and there was an entire section on faith. And trust me, it was the faith to do miracles, the faith to do this, the faith to do that. And there's a lot of talk about faith. In fact, many ministries are built upon this idea of faith. The problem, however, is when you get to ask, what does this faith mean? You begin to hear things that are, they are unbiblical and almost heretical. John wants us to know that authentic faith has an object. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 5. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Authentic faith is not blind faith. Blind faith is that kind of belief that does not come with understanding. It is like a man jumping into a dark room without knowing what he is doing. Sadly, this is the kind of faith that is prevalent among many people today. Have you ever met somebody who says, I'm a Christian, and then you ask him, what does it mean to be a Christian? Okay, well, I believe in Jesus. What do you mean when you say, I believe in Jesus? I don't know. Blind faith. Or perhaps what is beginning to trend in the West and is coming down to us, this idea of somebody being spiritual, but not belonging to any religion, not worshipping any god. I'm just spiritual. I'm trying to be at one with the universe. I'm trying to wade off negative energy. You know, yesterday I was watching something on YouTube. Forgive me if I have to use a football illustration. The current coach of Chelsea Football Club procured lemons from Spain and Italy and put it in his office. 
And they asked Poch and said, Poch, why do you keep lemons in your office? And Pochettino said that he has found out that lemons drive negative energy. Apparently, it's only in his office. It doesn't work on the pitch. But that's by the way. So there is this idea that we are spiritual. But we, we, don't, we don't worship God. We are just, we are spiritual people. So we take principles from Christianity. We take principles from Islam. We take principles from the religion of our forefathers. But we, 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 are, we are really religious. That's not authentic biblical faith. This faith is also not faith in faith. The late man of God, Kenneth E. Hagin, once wrote that it was by faith in faith that God created the world. I'll explain. You see, at the point of creation, which we find recorded in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke, and the speaking was a positive confession, and God believed in what he spoke. So, there was a confession of faith, and then God believed it. And then Hagin was writing on the book of Mark where uh, Jesus was talking about having faith. And he says that he can translate that to mean have faith in faith. And Kenyon, his forefather, said, what I confess, I possess. That's faith in faith. That as I am speaking it, I am possessing it. Now, that faith is not in Jesus. It is in the word spoken. So that whether Jesus is there or not, whether God is there or not, the fact that I have spoken it as a child of God, I believe in what I have said. That's faith in faith. That's not authentic faith. The kind of faith that John is talking about is not, is not faith in anything earthly. Growing up, anytime I'm about to embark on a journey, we gather as a family, we pray, and then the anointing oil that the man of God had prayed upon will appear. And then it will be dropped on the head. Sometimes you put it in your biro. I don't know who did that, but I did to write an exam. And then it is that because the man of God has prayed on this oil, there is a supernatural force in this thing, in this handkerchief, in this water. At some point, we had so many swan bottles at home. Just different, every, Saturday, every Wednesday became manna water service. And we keep buying and buying, not knowing that we're putting our faith in those things. John tells us that biblical, authentic faith has an object. And that object is Jesus Christ. The faith that he's talking about, the faith that the Bible opens up for us in the pages of scripture, is the faith that is in Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. We must believe this. You see, and this is not just say believing Jesus. You must believe certain truths about Jesus. And John, John is so careful from chapter 1 to not just drop Jesus, by the way. In fact, when he started his episode, he started by saying, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have heard, which we have handled, which we have seen. He's talking about a particular historical man, Jesus. That this man was or is the eternal son of God. 
that he is co-equal with the Father, co-essential with the Father. If there was ever a time that God was, Jesus was. And that this Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, at some point in human history, became man. As the Christ, he is the anointed one sent by the Father to redeem his people from their sins. This is the Jesus. And how did he do that? John has told us over and over again, by bearing their sins upon the cross. This is the Jesus that is the object of authentic faith. And this is not the error of Islam. Why they say we believe in Jesus, but that is a prophet. Some years back, we were doing an evangelism program in a fellowship I was a part of, and then we were fasting. I was a much younger Christian, and I was full of zeal. So I went into the house of some Muslims, alone, three Muslim guys, and they welcomed me and said, okay, sit down. They even gave me food. And we began to talk. What saved me that day was, despite all the things they were saying, they could not bring it from the scripture. What were they saying? I said, okay, do you know of Jesus? Yeah, we know of Jesus. And that he died for your sins. No, he didn't die for my sins. But I will believe in Jesus. And that in John chapter this, verse this, and John chapter this, verse this, and John. And they say they believe in Jesus. And when I left there, I left them saying that they believed in Jesus. This is not that kind of belief. This is not even a mere intellectual assent. Perhaps you're coming to church Sunday after Sunday. You have heard everything about Jesus. And then you just say, okay, yes, ah, now Jesus now. We know Jesus. We know everything he has done. We know the songs. We know the Bible passages. We know the memory verses. Yes, knowledge is part of this faith, but it is not just knowledge. It involves a trusting in this Jesus. It involves a, I am I'm dropping all the stakes, all the claims to my life, and I fall upon this Jesus for my salvation. It involves a, I no longer look to my works for my acceptance before God. I look to his works. It involves a, Every claim I have in my life, I disown and give to Jesus. I commit everything. He is Lord. That is authentic faith. And John wants us to know this because, see, this is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. It's not one of these things you say, okay, whether I, well, I'm spiritual, I do good. When I go, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven after all. Heaven, God, God sees everybody the same. God loves everybody. You hear that a lot today? No. It's a matter of life and death. Imagine going on that day and finding that you believe the wrong Jesus. Pastor Conrad in Bayway, in one of his sermons, tells us the story of one of his friends. This was before the age of social media and all this. Who was making a trip from Zambia to South Africa? So, if you, if you know the map of Southern Africa, you have Zambia, then you have Botswana and Mozambique, and then you have South Africa. And the man started off with Zambian kwachas, the currency of Zambia. And he started traveling down. When he got to the border, he exchanged it for South African rands. And then he was about to enter the country at the border. And then the officers, the immigration officers saw him and told him, okay, this currency you are carrying is fake. And he was apprehended. You can't enter 
with this fake stuff. And he found his way back to Zambia. What happened was, he went to meet these uh, Aboki guys, our BDC guys, that gave him fake currency. And because he had fake, fake money, of course, what would you say? He's a fraud. He's a fraudster. He was sent back. Imagine we go to heaven, and then we come and say, I have faith. And the faith is not in the authentic Jesus. It's a matter of life and death. So that's why we say that even though the Jehovah Witnesses, by the way, they came to my house and dropped some paper. Even though they claim to believe in a Jesus, because the Jesus that they do not believe in is not the Jesus, they don't have faith. And if you are here this morning, this is a matter of life and death. If you have not come to believe in this Jesus, as given to us on the pages of scripture, oh, you are in danger. But I find this also to be a source of assurance. And I think that's what John wants us to do. He wants us to be assured. You see, there are times in our lives. Now, the Reformed Confessions teach us that assurance rests on three legs. And I like to use the illustration of a kekena pep. Assurance rests on three legs. The first leg is the promises of God in Christ, which is the biggest tire in the kekena pep. The second leg is fruits of obedience, which is a smaller tire. And the third leg is the witness of the Holy Spirit. There are times in our lives where we don't have the last two legs. Where we are low on obedience. There are times in our lives where we cry, Holy Spirit, and it's as if there's no Holy Spirit. What do we latch on to? This fact that I continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That I continue to believe gives me assurance. You know those times when the devil comes and tells you, ah, you just sinned now. There's nothing for you. What do you hold on to? I believe this Jesus. I believe him. I believe him. I've dropped everything at his feet. My whole life have I committed to him. So you see how faith becomes a source of assurance. More on that later. But the second thing John wants us to know is the source of this faith. And the question he answers is, this authentic faith, where does it come from? It must come from somewhere. Where does it come from? Simple answer, this faith comes from God. What does this mean? It means that faith isn't something that we conjure up by ourselves. Faith isn't something we mix in the lab, in the spirit realm, and give to ourselves. Faith isn't something we manufacture. True faith is something that comes from outside of us. Look at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The has been there in the Greek is in the perfect tense. So the perfect tense points to something that has happened in the past but continues to have an effect in the present. So which comes first? Born of God. That God births us. God causes regeneration to happen before faith is exercised in Christ. In other words, what John is saying is this. Faith comes from the supernatural work of God in the soul of men. And why does this have to happen? Because we are dead in our sins. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2, from verse 1 to 3. Paul writes and said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. A man who is dead in his seats cannot have faith, cannot put his faith in Christ. A woman, a boy or a girl cannot put their faith in Jesus Christ. Something has to happen. God has to give life. And it is until God gives life that faith is formed. It is until God gives life that faith comes. We see this illustrated in the story of Lazarus. Poor Lazarus was in the grave, dead for four days. What can a dead man do? A dead man cannot move. A dead man cannot speak. When you preach to a dead man, a dead man cannot say, Oh, I believe. Something has to happen. What God does is that through the preaching of the word, God causes regeneration to happen. What is regeneration? That the dead man is brought back to life. This happens before we exercise our faith in Christ. Now, this is not a chronological order. That is, okay, first of all, God comes to a sinner and awakens the sinner. And then maybe five years later, God comes and gives the sinner the gift of faith, or the sinner exercises faith. No. It is more of a logical order. So, as a matter of fact, they happen together. When you see somebody who is born again by the Spirit of God, there is faith. But one causes the other. When God walks upon the heart of sinful men, then we exercise faith. The question some of us used to ask is, is this not useless Calvinism? Does it matter? Oh, of course it matters. It matters. What is, the, what is one of the greatest sources of fears of our worship, if not this? If not this fact, that in verse 4, but God. That's the fear of our worship. When we come on Sunday, sometimes and people are like, ah, there's no, he give me moto, he give me moto, he give me money. What's the fear of our worship? But God. That we were wretched, dead sinners. That we were rightfully the children of hell. That we were properly recipients of hell. We are not just people who were going to visit hell. We will have our seats prepared for us in hell. But God. But God overpowered us. But God walked in our souls. But God dealt with our wickedness. But God changed our natures. That's why it's important. Charles Spurgeon, one time in the 19th century, preaching on this subject, not necessarily this subject, but the subject of faith, decided to be creative a little and said he wanted to consider the Armenian's prayer. The man who says it is by my own free will, by my own free will that I came to Jesus, and he started talking about that man's prayer, or paraphrase, and he said, 
That the man says, oh God, thank you that I am better than other men. You know, you give small grace, but me, I took hold of it and I made the most use of it. And Spurgeon said, that's a devil's prayer. It is the Pharisee's prayer and it is the devil's prayer. We have faith because God worked in us. We have faith because God looked upon us in mercy, in our wretchedness, and he saved us. And this is fuel for worship. When we are down, you see, and things are not working well, which is why sometimes I find that much of what we call worship in our churches are so shallow. Everything is you too, they bless me. I have car, I have moto. So when the car and moto does not come, how do you worship God? This is it, that he saved me and gave me faith. That's the second thing John tells us about this faith. The third, which is really the largest, is John wants us to know the fruits of this faith. So we have considered the object of the faith, which is Jesus Christ, the source of this faith, which is God, and now John wants us to know the fruit of this faith. Now, the question is, what does faith cause to happen in the life of the believer from Monday to Saturday? Because now I have just said that all the things we call faith sometimes is not faith. So now that we know what faith is, what does faith cause to happen from Monday to Saturday? What should I be seeing in my life, basically? And to put this another way, on the other hand, how can I know that I have this faith? Is there a way to know if my faith is authentic? If there's so much false faith, if there's so much fake faith out there, how can I know that my faith is authentic? John gives us a number of fruits. Number one, love for God. And this is what we find in verse one. It is not directly there, but it's there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And specifically, he calls God the Father because it is God who gives life. God causes regeneration to happen. What does this mean, practically? It is that if I now have this proper faith, this authentic faith, I should find in my life that God becomes my number one priority. God becomes number one. God comes first. Whereas in previous times in my life, I would have been concerned with my own agenda. I would have been concerned with my own plans. I would have been concerned with my own way of doing things. Now God comes first. His desires come first. His law comes first. Everything about my life, God comes first. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, and your soul. By the way, what Jesus was saying in that passage was that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, first of all. And then the rest will follow. And that is the seat of who you are, your heart. So God comes first. To love God is, God becomes desired. God becomes desired. We want more of him. You know, now we have tasted and seen that God is good. Now we want to taste more. We want to see more of his goodness. God's word becomes sweeter and sweeter. The psalmist said in Psalm 19 that it is even sweeter than the honeycomb, where the honey comes from. So the first 
fruit of this faith is that whereas we, have, we were haters of God, once God gives us this faith, we become lovers of God. The second fruit of this faith is love for the Father's children, which is what we find in the second part of verse 1. He says, who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. It is actually something we see in our families. It is supposed to be, except that sin has messed things up. Brothers are meant to love each other. Siblings are meant to love each other. And John is saying, if you love God, you will love the person who God also gave birth to spiritually. That if you love God, you must love your brother. Remember, look at verse 21 of chapter 4. He has said this over and over again. He says, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And just for recap, what does this mean? We have established this already. That to love my brother means I love him or her in word and what? In deed. Not just in word. Because there's a kind of love that is in word, exists in platitudes, exists in talking. I will pray for you, but I never pray for you. I'm thinking of you, but I never think. I just see you like, ah, this guy, ah, that's, what's his name again? Ah. It is to love in deed and not just in word. It is also to love beyond the circle of those whom we like, like Chelsea fans. It is to love beyond the people that support my club or that are from my place. That is what love is. But then, John, this is where this text becomes very tricky. Because from verse 2 to verse 5 flows from this idea of loving the brothers. Look at verse 2. It says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Ha! Huh? What is John saying? I thought this is how we know we love God when we love his children. Now John is saying, this is how we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Now some commentators of this text have tried to do, some of them do some gymnastics, same with some translations of the Bible, but they fail to capture what is even in the original Greek text. You can't flip it. So this is what some people do. They come to the text and say, when, this is how we know we love God and keep his commandments, when we love the children of God. No, John is saying, this is how we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. What John is trying to get to, to, at, at the heart of is this. How can I know? Now you've told me plenty of things, right? Love indeed, even if he's not a Chelsea fan, love him, care for the person, do everything for the person. And you are telling me that I should, I should go out of my way. But how do I now know that in going out of my way, I am actually loving? That's the question John is trying to answer. Let me take it again. John is trying to answer this question of, I've told you to love the children of God, and you are doing it. But have you ever asked yourself, Am I really sure this is the right way to love this person? Have you ever been in a moral conundrum before? In a dilemma? And I shared an example with us one time. I met a guy on the streets, and the guy was asking me for food. And at that moment, at that very moment, he said he was sick. 
And I said, guy, how are you sick? So he emptied his pockets, trying to show me his drugs, and a stick of cigarette that had been smoked fell out of his pocket. Right? And so at that moment, the, the proper thing to do should be, of course, to give him money for food. Except that that's not money for food. So how do I know that what I am doing in that situation is actually loving my brother? That's what John is getting at. And look at verse 2 again. He says, this is how we know we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. How do we know we love the children of God? Two, re two ways. Number one. I love the children of God by loving God and keeping his commandments in my relationships with them. I love the children of God not by just being a fussy kind of, petty kind of, oh, touch your cheeks. I love them by loving God and keeping his commandments in my relationships with them. This is the cure for fake love today. You know, when I was writing my final year exams, we're about to get into the hall. And so I, I developed this thing of, so those of you who attend FUT, I think there are about five people, maybe up to seven. The lecture halls are like this. Like they, they, they grow from low, I think maybe every university in Nigeria. And so then you have students sitting spaced in the lecture hall. And then so I began to devise this thing because I figured out that the only way I can actually write my exam is to stay in front. Right? So when you stay in front, you are close to the lecture, nobody will disturb you. And so this day, I've forgotten the paper we were writing, and then my friend Nafisa then. So, so one person who had spent an extra year before and was rewriting the course was trying to do gumbody. I know what they said. Tahaba, this guy don't try you. May you help him now. Ah ah. I say, may you help him. Say, may Madukame is that close to you. So that at least he no go fail again. You know, say thing. And I look at it. This guy doesn't even care about what we are even doing here. May we help him. May we help him. And guess what happens? When you come out of that exam hall and you don't help the person, you know what they will say? This is they overdo. You know they like help person. After all, you say you are a Christian. <laughs> you say you are a Christian. Ordinary open paper for me. You know, go open. You come now, they sing song for fellowship. Nonsense. Wicked person. What John is saying helps us understand that in those situations, loving those people means that we love God and obey God in our living with them and in our relationships with them. Give us a few examples. In the issue of homosexuality, what do we hear? That you are supposed to love them. Now, the Church of England, by law, is forbidden to join a man and a man in a marriage. But they can recognize the union. And so I was on the Church of England website over the weekend. And they said that, of course, the Church of England in England, so the Anglican churches that in Nigeria, they don't do that. But in, in the UK, at the moment, you can't marry male and male at the moment. But you can recognize it and you can bless them. And they said, if you are seeking prayers, come. Ah. So you are trying to say, okay, eh, what I want to do is love. 
that if I love you, I will not fight against your sin. If I love you, I will affirm you. I say, how do you feel? I say, I feel like I'm a girl. Oh, fine girl. That's, that's not love. That's not love. Love is to look at that situation and say, oh boy, now man you be. You're a man. You're not a girl. You're not a female. You're a man, proper man. You were born male. There's no certain as trans and cis. To love means to tell that person to his face. And live with that person in that way. That's what John is saying. We love when we obey God in those relationships. Or the matter of church discipline. When the time comes, perhaps, and the brother is unrepentant, and you have tried over and over, oh boy, repent to boss, repent, turn to Christ, turn from your sins. And the person is obstinate and stubborn. And a day comes and the church says, According to the scriptures, this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We cannot admit you in membership anymore. Paul says we should uh, leave you to the death. The next thing you hear, do you know in that church they don't have love? Because love means to allow a sinner to remain in membership and allow sin to spread. That's not love. Or let me bring a popular example in our relationships that are leading to marriage. If I love you, I should not want to touch your body. Because that's against the commands of God. If I love you, I will not ask you to come to my house and spend the night in my house. Because that's against the commands of God. If I love you, I will do what Paul tells us to do. To treat younger women as sisters. And I will treat you as a sister. And so whatever I will not want to do to my sister, even though we are walking to marriage, I will not do to you. This is what it means to love God's people by loving God and obeying his commandments. So true love is guided by God's command among God's people. True love, proper love, authentic love, not yeah, 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 love, is, it flows out of a love for God and a desire to uphold his commandments. <coughs> But there's a second reason, or a second, second way <clears throat> to love the people of God. And number two is this, <clears throat> joyful obedience to God's commandments. Look at verse 3. It says, verse 3 says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And what John is saying is that we get to the point where in those relationships, um, strictly speaking, but also broader in our work with the Lord, we find that we obey God joyfully. So that when I'm telling you, you cannot come over, I'm not like, hi, I'm not crying. I'm joyfully obeying God. So that when I reject the offer, Whatever it is, an offer of employment to compromise or to do anything, joyful obedience. That's the second way we can love God. We know that we are actually loving people. Now, but there's this thing that John says that is difficult. He says his commandments are not burdensome. I mean, for real, is that our experience? Can we actually say God's commandment is not hard? 
Why do we struggle to pray? Why do we struggle to read our Bibles? Why do we struggle to give, to speak to the lost? Why do we struggle? It's because in our daily experience, we find that the commandments of God are hard and difficult. They are exacting. They are difficult. They involve a lot. Self-denial is not easy. They involve a lot of letting go. In fact, there's a song we sing. It's not an easy road. To remind ourselves when we gather together that this thing is hard. I think what John is saying is what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 verse 12. Paul said, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That is, when we look at the law of God properly, properly, it is for our good. It is for our good. It is for human flourishing. The reason why we fight against all these aberrations in society today, homosexual marriages, transgender rubbish, and all of these things, is because we figure out that the only way for human society to flourish is by what? Obedience to what God has told us in his word. So why then is God's law burdensome for us? Now, I want you to look at your Bibles. At the end of verse 3, there's a full stop. I want to argue that verse 3b and verse 4 are one sentence. The NIV captures it. The NIV puts a comma at the end of verse 3. So I'll read it now to your hearing. And his commandments are not burdensome because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. The four there can be translated as because in the Greek. So his commandments are not burdensome because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So the problem here is the world. It's actually the world that is the problem. And remember a few months back, we looked at 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17, where John says, do not love the world. The world is any sphere of society, any system, where the attitudes and values there are opposed to God. That's the world. Any sphere, any system, any society, where everything being advanced there is anti God. So the world is the reason why we find God's word, God's law burdensome. You know, God says, do this. And the world will lie to us. Have you watched any romantic movie recently where there's no premarital sex? That's the world. Trying to tell you that to wait for God's timing is a joke. A movie series recently ended called Money Heist. And people are actually rooting for criminals. Like, so we now have the world tries to tell you that, you know, there's good thief and there's bad thief. So whether it's Tokyo is the bad one and the other one is the good one. So what the world is trying to do is to sort of blur the lines. To tell you that, see, to obey God, see, I mean, it's, it's hard. You, you, can, you, you, can, you can do stuff and it's love. You can do stuff and it's okay. That's the world. So every day we are bombarded by the world. We are bombarded by the world. We are bombarded. To do the right thing becomes more and more difficult. We find God's law burdensome. I had issues with Nepa yesterday. You know what the Nepa guy told me? He said, this is normal. Normal. That the Nepa guy is even helping you to do what everybody knows is wrong. That's the world. But then the world has that power because we have a remaining worldliness in us. John tells us in chapter 2, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so because of these things, we find the law of God 
burdensome. But how do the commandments of God cease to be burdensome? Look at verse 4. Because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And this is the third fruit of faith, victory over the world. The Christian overcomes the world by faith. Like the song we used to sing. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith fills this joyful obedience that the Bible talks about to the law of God, to the word, to the word of God, to the commandments of God. Faith is what overcomes the world. It is through our faith that the commandments cease to be burdensome and we are free to obey God joyfully. But how does this work? In the first place, when Jesus died on the cross, what he did was to triumph over sin and the devil. He broke the bondage that that sin and the devil had over his people. And the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have overcome. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6 that sin has not, we will no longer have, but by virtue of what Christ has done, has no dominion over you. That's overcoming. And this is certainly what John says in the second part of verse 4b. That has overcome the world. Again, perfect. That has, over, it has already overcome the world. But then, faith on a daily basis is what overcomes the world. Faith continues to overcome the world. How? You see, it's faith that keeps us believing in Jesus. We keep on believing. When the world says, no, Jesus is not worth it, we keep on believing. When the world comes with all the pressures to take us away from him, we keep on believing. It is faith that enables us to draw from the resources that are in Christ on a daily basis. It is by faith that we draw upon Christ for grace. It is by faith that we draw upon him for strength. It is by faith that we come to him for mercy. By faith, we continue to believe all the promises of God. That the pure in heart shall see God. That's how we fight sin. It is by faith that the best is yet to come. That this thing that seems to be as if, if, I, cannot, if I don't do it, I will die. There's a better life. And even when I fall down because of faith in God, I rise up again. And I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 because I find that that's the best illustration for what the Apostle John is saying. We can see how faith overcomes the world in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll read a long passage of scripture from verse 4. He says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, irreverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir 
of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in fact was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named verse 21 by faith Jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It was by faith that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt by faith. It is faith that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory. But we are boxed up in that corner. Faith is the victory. Faith is how we keep on keeping on. Jude said, build up your most holy faith. And my charge to us as we close is this. Build up your most holy faith. You find that the world has boxed you into a corner. You may be in a backsliding state. And everything is hard. To obey God is hard. To come to church is hard. Nothing is joyful to you again about God. Oh, build up your faith. Build up your faith. How do you build up your faith? Make use of the means of grace. This is the means that God gives us to bulk up our faith from Monday to Saturday. When we go into the world tomorrow, to our workplaces, some of us work in places where the devil is a, head, is a chairman. By faith, we can overcome. Make use of the sacrament. Make use of the word of God. It is by the word of God that we are built up even in our faith. Make use of holy conversations. And my prayer is that God will make us know experientially of this overcoming of the world. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that you would take these words and plant it deep in our hearts and cause that these words will bear fruit. In Jesus' name.